Book of Mormon Prophecy, a podcast series by Avraham Gileadi, Ph.D. 7. Isaiah, Key to the Book of Mormon How does understanding the words of Isaiah help Latter-day Saints understand the Book of Mormon? Have we missed many central truths by not doing so? Welcome to podcast number seven, Isaiah, Keys to the Book of Mormon. About that, the Book of Mormon has keys to Isaiah, but Isaiah itself is a key to the Book of Mormon. Yeah. The Book of Isaiah is an end-time prophecy. We read that before, but I want to read it again from Isaiah 30, verse 8. Go now write on tablets concerning them, or plates, record it in a book for the end time as a testimony forever. The book of Isaiah is specifically intended for the end time. Of course, we read all these historical parts, nearly all historical in Isaiah, but when we understand that as an allegory of the end time, then these names that we read about become code names of people and nations and persons in the end time. And we'll really be getting into that later and disentangling all of that, make that very transparent at a certain point in time. Now, going to read from Isaiah 1, verse 4, one of the very first events, very sadly, that I discussed a little bit last time, is, um, is that Jehovah's end-time people apostatize. It's the apostasy of God's people who are the God's people today, which is us. Not the Jews, not the ten tribes, not the Lamanites, not natural lineages of the house of Israel, us today. And we are the covenant people that Isaiah is speaking to in chapter 1, the prophets, as I mentioned before, we are the Israel of today, just transposed the names to, you know, from Jerusalem and Israel to Salt Lake City, let's say, and, and you know, Latter-day Saints in general. Because this transposition of names is, is the key to what Isaiah is telling us today. So this apostasy of God's people sets in motion the chain of events that Isaiah and the Book of Mormon are talking about. Of course, it always starts with the Lord's own people upon his house, right? And so from there it goes on to all the other events that Isaiah and the Book of Mormon prophets have predicted that are still basically from the Book of Isaiah. Whenever Book of Mormon prophets prophesy anything of the future, the end time, it's always taken from Isaiah. They always start off with Isaiah, using the book of Isaiah and his prophecies as a basis for what they're going to talk about. And they'll expand upon it, they'll interpret it, they'll nuance it. But Isaiah is the basis of what they, Nephi, Jacob, Jesus, others in the Book of Mormon talk about. How about that? That these prophecies of Isaiah are so important that even Jesus himself, instead of giving his own spiel and prophecies, Starts quoting Isaiah and other prophets, but mostly Isaiah. That has to tell us something, right? So let's make that our priority as well. And then we'll be in good shape. We'll know what, why the Lord requires it of us. All right. So here is from Isaiah chapter 1, verse 4. Alas, a nation astray, a people weighed down by sin, the offspring of wrongdoers, perverse children, they have forsaken Jehovah. They have spurned the Holy One of Israel. They have lapsed into apostasy. They have gone backwards, the King James translation says. 
gone away backwards. They've fallen away. But they've done it over several generations. But now, especially the latest generation, are going that way uh, at a faster rate than ever before. And that's when the Lord brings his judgments to bear upon his people and upon the world. When they ripen in iniquity, when the iniquity of a people is full, when their dysfunctional patterns are so set in that the rising generation has little or no way of, on its, by itself of rising above it, of getting out of it, then the Lord makes an end of it. He brings on his judgments and cleans up everybody. It's a mercy at that point to destroy them before they commit more evil. You get what I'm saying? That's the pattern in the scriptures. Jehovah's end-time people resemble Sodom, Isaiah chapter 3, verse 9. Right, it gets that bad. Even in chapter 1, God's people and their leaders are mentioned as Sodom and Gomorrah. The look on their faces betrays them. They flaunt their sin like Sodom. They cannot hide it. Woe to their souls, they brought disaster upon themselves. Now, woe is a curse, a covenant curse. Now, they're flaunting their sin like Sodom because it's out in the open. How about that, you know, have you noticed the stuff that's going on in the world today? I don't need to remind you of um, how in the open many things are now and how many people have come out and are so adamant that their way is, is good. And Isaiah says, black is called white and white is black and sweet is called bitter and the bitter is called sweet. Everything is topsy-turvy. And this is the time we're talking about. This is the time Isaiah is talking about. And then Isaiah 24, verses 5 and 6, this is the crux of the matter also. Jehovah's end-time people nullify his covenant. Now this is huge. The earth lies polluted under its inhabitants. They have transgressed the laws, changed the ordinances, set at naught the ancient covenant. The curse devours the earth, for those who dwell on it have incurred guilt. Because of it, the population of the earth shall be diminished, and little of mankind remain. Well, who has the laws and ordinances? Well, we do. So who's, who's transgressing them? Well, we are. It always starts with the Lord's own people, right? But it brings a curse upon the whole earth. This is when ancient Israel apostatized. It brought a curse upon the whole earth. That's when the great Assyrian invasions of the world happened, conquest of the world. And a century and a half later, the Babylonians did the same thing when the southern kingdom of Judah apostatized. It brings the curse of, uh, or the destructions of God upon the whole earth. God's people are the, are the catalyst of it all. Not very good news. But it's all part of God's plan. It has to happen so he can clean up the earth. He's not going to depart from what he said. Yes, we can repent. And, we can, and if there's enough of us that repent, he'll wait a little longer. But what he has spoken, he's going to bring to pass. There's no precedent in the scriptures for him not doing what he said he would do. People point to, you know, the time of Jonah, that when the people of Nineveh repented, the Lord didn't do it. He didn't destroy Nineveh like he said he would. And people point to that as a precedent with some kind of type and shadow of saying, hey, he doesn't, he's not going to do it if you just repent. Yes, for one thing, we're not repenting. And secondly, he did fulfill it later on in another generation. He fulfilled it to the letter in the days of Tobit, Tobias. So what happens then when all of this is going on among us and we're the catalyst for these horrible things? Now, the Book of Mormon has all of these types and so does Isaiah. We're going to be discussing that in other 
podcast as well. The king of Assyria punishes Jehovah's people from Isaiah chapter 10, verses 5 through 7. Now, there are all these wars in the Book of Mormon, right? We'll be talking about that in our next podcast. And we'll be showing how that ties in with as a type and shadow for, for the Isaiah's end-time scenario. But this is from Isaiah now. It's going to repeat itself in our day. Hail the Assyrian, the rod of my anger. He's a staff, my wrath in their hand. That is, the Lord uses him as a, as a staff of punishment, as a rod of his anger. He personifies God's anger and wrath, and he's going to do a lot of damage among God's people and upon the whole world, as I mentioned. as happened anciently. I will commission him. So it's the Lord's doing it. I will commission him against the godless nation, that is, his own nation. Appoint him over the people deserving of my vengeance to pillage for plunder, to spoliate for spoil, to tread underfoot like mud in the streets. Remember the salt that lost its savor? Be trodden underfoot? There it is. Nevertheless, it shall not seem so to him. This shall be not be what he has in mind. His purpose shall be to annihilate and to exterminate nations not a few. So his purpose is to commit worldwide genocide. You've heard of that agenda, right? And that's his agenda too, so that people will be easier, there'll be less people to rule over. It's not very pretty, is it? And it goes on in chapter 13 of Isaiah, verses 4 through 6. There's many more scriptures we could quote on this subject, but it gets pretty depressing. It's not all gloom and doom, and I don't want to dwell on it too much. Foreign armies invade the promised land. And this is our promised land today, the lands of America. It's going to repeat itself in our day, as it was anciently with the Assyrians and, their, and the promised land of God's people then that they invaded. Hark a tumult on the mountains as of a vast multitude. Hark an uproar among kingdoms as of nations assembling. Because Assyria, this world power from the north, in the book of Isaiah, we have a world power from the north, a militaristic world power that has, you know, in anciently it conquered the, it was the first military power, Assyria was, to conquer the world by military force. And Isaiah uses that as the type and shadow or precedent for what's going to repeat itself in our day. Of course, can you think of a world power from the north that, that could do that to the world today with its nuclear weapons that it has and so forth? But it's not just them. It's an, it's an Assyrian alliance of nations, as we just read. Nations assembling. Jehovah of hosts is marshalling an army for war. They come from a distant land beyond the horizon. Jehovah and the instruments of his wrath to cause destruction throughout the earth. Lament, for the day of the Lord is near. It shall come as a violent blow from the Almighty. The day of Jehovah is near. It's God's day of judgment, a day of universal judgment, worldwide judgment upon the earth. And who's going to do it? He's going to use the Assyrian alliance as his instrument. You compare that with first, the First World War and the Second World War, and you'll see there are definite resemblances. And those two wars are themselves a type and shadow of what's going to happen only this time around. It's going to be worse than the combination of all the wars in the past because it's so graphic that you know all the prophecies point to the fact that this time around it's going to cleanse the entire earth permanently and get rid of all celestial people, all people who haven't repented because the earth itself is going to transform to a terrestrial glory. Any celestial people or worse, sons of perdition, will have to go somewhere else. 
But the Lord is going to deliver a remnant of his people out of it, as we've seen before, God's elect, the natural lineages of the house of Israel, who are willing to and do receive the gospel and begin to believe in the Lord their Savior, they are going to be gathered together. As we read in Isaiah 48, verses 20 through 21, which Nephi quotes in 1 Nephi 20, verses 20 and 21, a remnant of Jehovah's people exits Babylon. Go forth out of Babylon, flee from Chaldea. Now Babylon is defined in the book of Isaiah as the world at large that gets destroyed in the end time. Now Babylon was anciently an idolatrous, you know, an idolatrous culture and nation, spread its influence over the ancient world. And this is the type or the model or example that we have that Isaiah uses, and the book of Revelation uses it as well. You've seen that. About the woman Babylon, it's, and also Nephi does when he talks about the, the great abominable church, the whore of all the earth. He can't say Babylon, Nephi can't, because Babylon in Nephi's day was still a political power. But spiritually, in the scriptures, Babylon is way more than just political. It's, it's the spiritual Babylon, this idolatrous world conglomerate. Go forth out of Babylon, flee from Chaldea. Make this announcement with resounding voice. Broadcast it to the end of the earth. Say, Jehovah has redeemed his servant Jacob. They thirsted not when he led them through arid places. He caused water to flow for them from the rock. He cleaved the rock and the water gushed out. Well, that happened in the Exodus out of Egypt, right? When Moses and the angel of the Lord led their Exodus out of Egypt, the cloud of glory went before them. And when they thirsted and they came to a thirsty place, Moses smote the rock and the water gushed out. And that rock is, of course, symbolic of Christ and the waters of life. And that exodus out of Egypt is going to repeat itself. It's one of the main events in the book of Isaiah. The remnant of God's people come out of Babylon in an exodus from the four directions of the earth, led by kings and queens of the Gentiles, as we discussed last time. All right, moving on. Isaiah 43, verses 5 through 7. They return from the four directions. I will bring your offspring from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give up. To the south, withhold not. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth, all who are called by my name, whom I have formed, molded, and wrought for my own glory. They come from the four directions in a new exodus, and they're provided for in the wilderness, like the water flowing from the rock. And somebody is going to bring these sons and daughters, but we've already seen that the kings and queens of the Gentiles are going to do that. They carry Israel's sons and daughters in their arms and upon their shoulders. And this sons and daughters category is a special category of the remnant of God's people. It is the elect. And we also gather from this that they're in bondage. He says, say to the north, give up. To the south, withhold not, because they are withholding people in bondage. The powers that be in that day will have these people in bondage. And it will be the job of these servants of God, the end-time servants of Ephraim lineage, to gather them and to release them from that bondage. So that means they'll have extraordinary spiritual powers to do that. And we'll be talking about that also in the future. 
And then it goes on in uh, Isaiah 51.11, which is quoted in 2 Nephi 8.11. Let the ransomed of the Lord return, that is, the ones who are the elect. Let them come singing to Zion, their heads crowned with everlasting joy. Let them obtain joy and gladness, and sorrow and sighing flee away. So first there is sorrow and sighing. The Lord tests everybody to see if they're going to be loyal to him. They're going to compromise themselves some way, or if they're going to repent. When they repent and hear the gospel and believe it and so forth, they're going to be gathered and ransomed from the, from, from the bad stuff. And then their situation will reverse itself. Instead of sorrow, there'll be joy and rejoicing and gladness, gladness of heart, and their heads will be crowned with it permanently from that time forth all through the millennial age. It's a beautiful concept, a beautiful image to think about. Now they also come home in a miraculous exodus from the four directions. There's in Isaiah 43, verse 2. The elements cannot prevent their return home. When you cross the waters, I will be with you. When you traverse the rivers, you shall not be overwhelmed. Though you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. His flame shall not consume you. That's when Nephi talks about they will be saved as by fire. So the very fire that destroys the wicked in that day, the righteous are going to be walking right through it. Because they'll be endowed with power. As it says, he saw the power of God descend upon the saints and upon the covenant people of the Lord. And these saints are these kings and queens of the Gentiles, these holy ones, saints, sanctified ones, going to be bringing the house of Israel out of captivity, out of bondage from the four directions in an exodus to Zion. And the elements and no world powers can stand in their way. They'll have power over the elements. Right, so now we come to the end. Summary, kind of summarize. Understanding the prophecies of Isaiah helps to understand the Book of Mormon. Because the Book of Mormon does what Isaiah does. It uses specifically those types and shadows from the past to predict what happens in the future. And that's what we'll be discussing next time. Next time we'll be doing a discussion on does a lot of Book of Mormon history serve as a type and shadow of our day? And you know that they wrote less than a hundredth part of what they could have written in any given instance. And we're going to discuss all about that. The time frame of what we just read was God's day of judgment that precedes the Lord's coming to reign upon the earth, the day of Jehovah, of destruction upon the wicked and deliverance of the righteous. And moving forward, as far as we're concerned, are we applying Isaiah's words to ourselves for our profit and learning? Because the more you get into this, it gets more and more exciting, doesn't it? I mean, it just opens your eyes to a whole new scenario. Well, we didn't certainly didn't learn in Sunday school. The kind of stuff we always chose to pass over, right? But here it is, all scriptural, and it's all there waiting for us to search, search out. So, recommended reading for this time around is the Book of Isaiah, a new translation with interpretive keys from the Book of Mormon. You'll learn a lot from that book, and you'll also be able to get a nice translation of Isaiah. It's way easier to read than the King James Version of the Book of Isaiah. All right, that's it for today. Thank you for joining us. Spread the word. Appreciate that. See you next time. Thank you for joining us today. Join us next time when we learn 
How will history repeat itself? Why does the Book of Mormon include only select portions of Nephite history and exclude so much else? What impact did Isaiah have on Nephite prophets?